For the past several years, Burma, also known as Myanmar, had been transitioning toward a democratically elected, civilian-run government. That progress came to a sudden halt in February when the military enacted a coup. Derek Mitchell, president of the National Democratic Institute and former ambassador to Burma, joins us to talk about this inflection point in Burma's history. The military likes to say that without them, without use of force, without them there, the country will fragment, will break apart, and there will be chaos and civil war. And the case must be made that, in fact, it's the opposite. That their engagement, their, their brutality, and their engagement in politics and prevention of peace is the thing that is preventing Burma from getting on its feet and having a sustainable, reconciled polity. And this is a critical moment for that. This is why the moment is ripe for us all, including those in Asia, to get in the in the game here and try to midwife a new Burma uh, out of the very, very tragic old. Ambassador Mitchell explains why he still has a lot of hope for a truly unified Burma, which includes the Rohingya, and why the international community, including the United States, needs to continue its involvement. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Well, we're set to have a really topical discussion today about what's happening in Burma, also known as Myanmar. It's an area the Bush Institute is keenly interested in because our Liberty and Leadership Program has, for the past several years, worked to support young people in Burma that are advancing democracy. But as you might have seen in the news, that democratic movement has hit a major setback with the military coup that just went down. Um, So joining us to help us understand it is Derek Mitchell, the U.S. Ambassador to Burma from 2012 to 2016, and he's currently the president of the National Democratic Institute. Ambassador Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And our co-host today is Michael Bailey, Program Manager in the Bush Institute, working with our leadership program, specifically with the aforementioned Liberty and Leadership Program. Howdy, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Good. Well, so Ambassador Mitchell, you were America's first ambassador to Burma after 22 years. And so, you know, we all kind of have this sense that ambassadors have this important title and important role. But what specifically were you working on with Burma? What were you doing as ambassador? Well, Burma is an incredibly complicated country. And when I was there, it was a period of uh, some hope where things were opening up, where uh, decades of military dictatorship were easing, and there's uh, ability for the opposition, for the media, for civil society to have more political space. So my job essentially was to try to keep that momentum going best I could, using the leverage of American power, uh, American engagement, American diplomacy, it was very clear that they were very pro-America throughout the country. And even in the government, there was a desire to change what had been a very alienated relationship. So that gave me the opportunity to build relationships there, to get to know who was who. We didn't know basically the basics because things had been closed to us for so long. So my job was to figure out what was going on, who was who, and try to continue the momentum of opening, political opening that we were seeing on a daily basis. And then as ambassador, of course, your, your job is so, you know, every day is so different. Um, if you have, we had a lot of delegations from Washington, U.S. government delegations who wanted to see what was going on. So I had to host them and, and then get around the country. The country was close to us. Again, that was another thing close to us. So I was trying to travel and, and, um, and just represent the United States in a country of great promise. While you're ambassador, what were what were what were some of your biggest takeaways while you were in the country? Like, what when you what did you 
really feel as, as, you, as you watched and interacted with, with the people and the government? Well, first of all, how beautiful the country is, how special its culture is, how incredibly complex and complicated the dynamics are. Um, its culture was multifaceted. It, it was really an amalgam of different uh, cultures. Um, but uh, how far they had to go was the feeling. They, they had 50 years of systematic degradation that the military had imposed on it. So our challenge was to figure out how to help them at least stop digging, um, start to, to uh, build back a little bit, um, and, and see what we could do to help them and manage our expectations, frankly, because it was going to be, even in the best of circumstances, going, going to take a long time. Uh, the place had been uh, locus for the longest running civil war in the world. It's been essentially a civil war since independence in 1948. So how do you bring some unity? How do you build trust across the vast differences, um, but also uh, build on what was tremendous potential of this country? They had tremendous potential, the rice bowl of Asia in the old days, the center of Southeast Asia that had become a basket case. That DNA was there. And the question was just trying to help them get back on their feet and on the right track. We we saw the the unfortunate events that that took place um, beginning on on February first through the military coup, and so um, we're wondering if if you can just at a high level kind of talk about what what happened in Burma on February first, um, what specifically took place, and and what's been happening since. Well, it was very straightforward what happened on February first. Uh, the military took over. They just uh, spread out and they arrested the uh, leader of the government, Aung San Suu Kyi. They, uh, they arrested many of the parliamentary, uh, um, the legislators who had won election in November, who were supposed to take office on February 1st. The parliament was supposed to sit on that day. Instead, police came or military came and arrested them either under house arrest or into prison, uh, shut down uh, civil society, uh, and just made it clear that now the military was in charge. That's what happened on February 1st, traditional basic coup uh, that you would know. But it was based on um, a deep alienation between and division between the military and the civilian government. Um, and um, we're trying to figure out exactly why it happened. There are many theories as to why from just the personal vulnerability the commander-in-chief may have felt about his future and his family's future. Um, to just an overall uh, humiliation the military felt from losing just so badly in a landslide election again last November uh, and in a system they felt that was pretty well controlled under the Constitution, that they may have felt things slipping away. So, uh, and that the civilians were, were, um, were, were having their way with them, basically, were outmaneuvering them. So they felt they had to regain control, I suppose. And I don't think they expected what happened on February 8th or so, a week later when people started to come out and, um, and basically say, not on our watch. We're not, we're not going back. Were you surprised that that, that happened as, as someone that's intimately familiar with the country? Did that, were you taken aback and said, oh, I did not see that coming right now? Well, it was always a possibility. Anyone who followed the country, they've had coups in the past. The military felt they had the prerogative to take over whenever they wanted to. Uh, even if under the Constitution there are very specific procedures that would have to happen um, for the military to assert emergency rule. Um, so we had no illusions about it. And there were always rumors, even when Aung San Suu Kyi ran her government over the past five years, 
But yeah, it still was a surprise. And frankly, it was a surprise to a lot of the people on the ground who were the elites who, who in the media, uh, who were political leaders. There was evidence the military was unhappy. There were maneuvers in the days ahead of the coup itself. But when it happened, I think it still surprised people. Um, so on the one hand, no, it doesn't surprise you knowing Burmese history. But on the other hand, the fact that they do it this soon under such a thin pretense, there just simply was no reason to do it except, um, you know, wanting power and money. And I mean, they're not even, it's hardly even a pretense. Um, that was surprising. So you you touched on kind of uh, not exactly sure if the military expected what they started to see, you know, beginning February 8th or so. Is there, can you kind of give us a, a picture of what the streets of Burma look like today? Um, our, obviously, our Liberty and Leadership alumni are actively involved in, in engaging in um, many of the protests throughout the country. But can you, from your perspective, tell us a little bit about what you've seen and, and what the streets look like today? Well, first of all, let me just say kudos to the Bush Institute for the work you have done on the ground with young people, the Liberty and Leadership Program. It really has been sensational. And the type of uh, support that we should be giving from outside shows solidarity and help a country that is desperate to build its capacity and to learn from the world after so many years of isolation. It's a great program, and I really hope we, you can continue it in some fashion under these conditions. I mean, all I see, the, I can see the pictures that everyone else can uh, about what's happening. I haven't been there in the past two and a half months, but essentially it's a battlefield. Um, you look at, uh, on the streets, you see on the one hand defiance from young people, lots of them women, young women who are taking to the streets in the lead, uh, remarkable courage, remarkable resilience, um, remarkable patriotism that they feel towards their country. Um, that they see, frankly, they see their futures being taken from them. So on the one hand, you're seeing and being inspired by amazing sights of, of bravery. Um, and on the other hand, you see battle zones where the military are shooting back with live ammunition, killing people, maiming people, children, women, um, all, everybody, uh, indiscriminately. And the people are fighting back by erecting barricades and, and doing whatever they can to withstand their horror uh, frankly, it's a horror, and they call it domestic terrorism, that they're under that kind of siege. So, um, And you're not just seeing it in the main cities in the center, the typical Rangoon, Yangon, um, or Mandalay. You're seeing it in the outlying areas as well. Um, so it's all over the country. It's remarkable. The unity amidst all the diversity in this country and all the divisions traditionally, the people are coming together as one to say, we absolutely reject the military uh, returning to power. So it sounds like the international community rejects the military coming to power. The the people reject it. So what is the military's end game? Where does this go, where does this go from here? Well, they think they can wait this out. You know, um, possession is nine tenths of the law. I guess is what they say. If they just <laughs> right they establish their that they are in the lead and uh, and leading the country. They had hoped early on, you know, right after the coup, their their initial strategy was basically to tell the world nothing to see here. Everything's the same. Don't worry, companies. We're going to continue the contracts. You know, there was just this election that we didn't like. We thought there was fraud. But we'll get an election back on track soon enough. We're just going to take care of things for now. But steady as she goes. And nobody believed it inside or outside the country. Um, so that was their initial strategy, was simply to say nothing to see here. After a while, 
they saw the civil defense or disobedience movement where massive amounts of people in the service sectors, including the government, simply refused to go to work. Uh, and they're shutting down banking, they're shutting down government, they're shutting down healthcare, education, everything. The whole economy is being shut down because people are not willing to follow um, the government, the lead, uh, the so-called government of the military. So now the military has a, a combination of tried to um, intimidate them by shooting indiscriminately, by just brutality, and that will cow them, cow the people. And then wait it out because how long can people withstand not having a job, not having money, um, and get into the streets and taking the violence? So they're hoping that over time that just that time wins and that they can then assert control, work with the international community, including those in Southeast Asia, on a way forward that allows them to take their time with new elections, probably change the constitution to fully entrench military control, uh, and meanwhile, just preserve their prerogatives and preserve their privilege inside the country um, for the long term. Can you give us a little history lesson? Because the, the military was in control before the, this democratic movement. How did, that, how did that transition the previous time? And is there a chance the same path is going to happen this time? Yeah, I mean, the strange that's one of the things that people wonder about when who follow Burma is they didn't have to do this necessarily. Why did they feel they had to do this? They have under the constitution that was written by the military before there was this transition to democracy, um, such as it was, it was sort of a half democracy. But even the constitution that was in place in 2008 gave 25% of the parliament parliamentary seats automatically to the military. The military had control of, uh, of the defense department, defense ministry, the border ministry, um, and the interior ministry. So police and military functions were, were driven by the military, did not go to the civilians. Uh, they had control of much of the economy. They still do have control of much of the So what is it that they felt they needed further? Why do they have to do this? Um, and it's still, we're not quite sure why they felt they did. But, um, you know, so what they want from here, um, I doubt it's going to be what they had before. What they had under the 2008 Constitution um, was not satisfactory. I think they want to change that. They want to have even more control somehow uh, over the system, the democratic system, so that civilians are not able to outmaneuver them. Um, but, you know, it can't go back to the status, status quo ante, I think, for either side. The polarization in the country is absolute. The people are saying we're not going to deal with this hybrid system anymore. It didn't work. We don't like. We were barely accepting it before. Now there's no way. Uh, and they want the military out of politics. The military is saying now, you know, we're going to stay in politics and be dominant. Uh, and it's hard to see them coming off that because of history, because of you know their view of themselves as being essential to the polit politics of the country. So this makes a resolution very, very difficult to, to identify, but there has to be some, frankly, I think outside assistance to you know, prevent what is happening now, which is a descent into a failed state status where both sides are not going to give. And you, you may have a failed state in the heart of Asia, which will do nothing, no good for anybody, including the United States, but certainly China, India, Thailand, the neighbors, Southeast Asia. Uh, it's very, very dangerous. Um, so I don't think they can handle this, frankly, on their own, and they need some guidance, or not guidance, but um, assistance from the outside. And is that is that outside assistance? Is that the United States? 
U.S. should be part of it. I think U.S. is doing its best. We have limited leverage on on the situation. We have limited amounts of, um, of investment. Uh, are the relationships that we used to have uh, have atrophied? Um, and I don't blame anyone in particular. I had built relationships when I was there, including with the commander in chief in the military. But the one word we haven't mentioned that was dominating uh, people's thoughts on, on Burma before February first with the Rohingya. So that after that in August of 2017 and the massacres, the crimes against humanity, the you know genocide potentially of what happened, then we have less of uh, a, a channel of communication, a trusted channel to talk. So uh, others do have better communication. Japanese do, ASEANs do, Singaporeans, Thais, Indonesians, the Indians. So we we have, I think, done everything we can as a government to impose targeted sanctions, to delegitimize, to to call on others, our allies and partners, not to legitimize this government, to, through the United Nations, push for an arms embargo and lead. And I just saw that our ambassador, Thomas Greenfield, just yesterday put out a very strong statement on this point. Uh, but it's all being blocked by China and Russia, any action through the UN Security Council. Um, and so far, Southeast Asia, Japan and India uh, and China are not, you know, are taking a little bit of a careful approach for one reason or another, partly because of geopolitics. But um, I think it's frankly the wrong approach for for this moment, which is a unique moment. This is not 1962 or 1988, the last times when there were coups. A lot more is happening that are a lot more decisive, not just for Burma, but for the region. You you talked about uh, the Rohingya population, and and earlier we were talking about unity, and 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 I'm wondering, from from your perspective, what have you noticed in terms of unifying of the the ethnic minority groups in the country? Is um, and, and how do you see this um, affecting the Rohingya population in the future? Yeah, well, look, that question is the defining challenge of Burma, regardless of a coup, regardless of democracy, regardless of Aung San Suu Kyi, all the other things are in Rohingya are are kind of a, a function of this, but only one component of a broader issue, which is how does this country hold together without use of force? Uh, the country has never really had, as, as currently configured, it's sort of a colonial construct to some degree. Uh, during for, from British colonial days, which was, of course, held together through force. Um, even previous to British colonialism, there were independent kingdoms, like where the Rohingya are located is Rakhine State. And the Rakhine had an independent kingdom for hundreds of years until they were forcefully unified with the Burmans. So the question is, how does this, how do you deal with all these ethnic challenges inside the country to enable a unified single uh, you know, nation? Um, and sense of nationhood. Um, what we're seeing, ironically, from this moment that gives one hope is that you are seeing that unity happen. And it's coming in, in part because, of course, the, the unifying nature of the anti-military attitudes. And that's what unified them even during the, you know, the days of the junta before, you know, 2011 or so. Um, but you're seeing it even more um, you know, cohere more deeply. Um, you're seeing people all over the country, frankly, they they voted for the National League for Democracy under Aung San Suu Kyi, whether, you know, for just because she was a symbol of anti-military activity. But even more right now, um, the the uh, so-called committee representing the 
Pieter Latal, the committee representing the legislature, the parallel government that is set up of all the legislators that couldn't take their seats. They consider themselves a legitimate government. They are working now with the ethnic uh, groups very closely to create a new federal constitution that will reflect uh, the dignity and the rights of all equally instead of privilege simply of the Burmans, the majority Burmans at the center. Uh, there was a lot more commitment to this. There was a lot more energy behind it. And what you're seeing, even with the Rohingya, which is interesting, because the Rohingya were never considered part of the natural fabric, even of that country that they're talking about. But you're seeing people on the streets, young people who say, my eyes have woken up. I see again now with the military. When the outside world said the Rohingya were being brutalized, I thought that was just propaganda. Now I see what the military is doing, not just to the Rohingya, but to the Kachin and Karen and all these other groups outside the center. Therefore, we need to work together, uh, you know, uh, so that we have justice everywhere. As Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. They're starting to recognize that if they don't bring justice to everyone, that they themselves are at risk. And that awakening uh, across ethnic boundaries gives me a great deal of hope that they can get on a path to, to truly addressing the, the core challenge of the country. The military likes to say that without them, without use of force, without them there, the country will fragment will break apart and there'll be chaos and civil war. And the case must be made that in fact, it's the opposite. That their engagement, their, their brutality and their engagement in politics and prevention of peace is the thing that is preventing Burma from getting on its feet and having a sustainable reconciled polity. And this is a critical moment for that. This is why the moment is ripe for us all, including those in Asia, to get in the in the game here and try to midwife a new Burma uh, out of the very very tragic old. Do, do you think this unity or this moment is is different from past situations that have happened in the country? Um, what have you kind of noticed as being a defining difference that might give you a little more hope this time or a, a little more optimism based on what you're seeing f- from this unity and from the young people standing up for democracy? I think there's just, just a greater, deeper commitment. There is now a personal recognition now, as I say, of the uh, the perils of disunity, of uh, the need to be unified, to be listening to one another and respectful of one another when they say that we, they're undergoing threat, undergoing violence, that there is that trust is starting to be built a little bit. And it's a long way from here to there. Um, the mistrust is deep. There are a lot of, there's a lot of corrupt elements. There's a lot of um, history, a lot of trauma, a lot of corruption throughout the society among all ethnic groups. I'm not saying it's easy or that what we see is determinant of a, uh, a new uh, Burma, but it is the, the seeds of that that we see that we did not see in 62. Certainly we didn't see their response. You don't see, you didn't see really in 88, which was much less organized, much more widespread chaos uh, even perpetrated by the opposition and folks in the street, you see now uh, people peacefully demonstrating, civil disobedience, peaceful demonstrations, organization, their network, their internet tech savvy. Um, they're unified more. They're listening to one another. There's something different about this. Uh, but the problem is the military is in the way. Um, they have to be part of the solution. I don't see any solution without the military being part of it, unfortunately. It'd be wonderful to say, just get out. But um, if they can 
if there's someone in the military who sees that the track they're on is destructive enough, even for their own interests, personal interests, then one can find some hope that they will uh, change their calculations of the path they're on. And the, and the uh, requirement um, of the international community is to do everything we can to change those calculations. We should do much more. I think the U.S. is doing what it can, but in Asia and elsewhere, do more to try to change the calculations of the military and impose a cost that they will find unacceptable in the near term, but then give them a way out in the longer term that they, that, that, uh, that they might accept if they can see a way out that serves their interest, um, but also serves the, the broader interest of the country, that's the only way out of this mess. You know, we kind of started as a baseline that democracy good, military rule bad. And, and we've, we've often had guests on, we've talked about why democracy is so important. And as, as the president of the National Democratic Institute, I would imagine, you know, we'd love to hear in your words, why, why does this matter? Why, why do we need this democracy there? Yeah. Well, from their perspective, as I mentioned, because of the war and the fighting and the the sense of the lack of um, sense of dignity that each of these ethnic groups have, they want to have some autonomy. They want to have respect for their cultures, different cultures. They want to have uh, their rights uh, respected. The only way is to give them a voice, and the only way to do that is through democracy. I mean, just there's just no way other than democracy for a lasting peace because they've had 70 years of trying to fight it out. Again, longest running civil war. You know, trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. So they should, they know they need to try something different than democracy. So that's why they, there's no doubt that they need it. There's, there's no way out, of, uh, no alternative to that. In terms of our interest in it, um, is it similar? The, the longer this, I mean, we have a great interest in Asia. ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the 10 nations of Southeast Asia, they're our fourth largest trading partner. We have a lot of, um, uh, you know, financial and trade and other interests there. Uh, it, it sits at the crossroads of a dynamic East Asia, a dynamic South South Asia. It's between India and China, India and Southeast Asia. Um, there is, and, and what they've been is a fount of instability. They're a fount of health challenges, of malaria, of drug running, of uh, human trafficking, of, you know, uh, you name it. They have been the fount of, of, you know, of methamphetamines and opium. All of that are destabilizing factors in uh, in the region and in the world. And the the current uh, dynamics, military domination, will only lead to to desperation, and desperation leads to these kinds of conditions. Um, democracy is the only way, and you know, it's evident only way for a real stability inside the country. Um, so that we can try to get this country on its feet and contributing to a dynamic Asia that means so much to us in the world. And secondly, I mean, the, the bigger issue, and I'm sure the Bush Institute talks about it all the time, but these people are seeking what we desire. I mean, what, what, we, what we value in the world. Um, and, and they are seeking a democracy. They're very pro-American, as I said. Um, we should support them. Um, they want to be educated. They want to be integrated. They want to fulfill their potential. And they have so much potential. Uh, they used to have when they were in you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, they were the leaders of Southeast Asia, as I mentioned. They were the rice bowl of, of Asia. Um, so wouldn't it be wonderful if they had a dignified political system uh, that can get them back on track? And I, I really think that it matters to every American to try to help them 
achieve that for themselves and frankly for all of us. So we're we're coming up on just over two almost two and a half months since since the the coup took place and um the military has said they would hold battle hold uh power for up to a year they've said they could extend that for another year what do you think um all of this these past couple months mean for Burma's democracy overall and do you have any idea of of what the the end looks like yeah it's hard to say um, it's been devastating for the country writ large, not just for democracy, but for its economy. Um, it's, you know, even if they get back on their feet at some point, it's hard to, you think like a, a company, a corporation, many have took a risk because they've had a history of instability. Um, they took a risk to invest there. So yeah, some of the lower quality investors, the Chinese will go in there and others may try and go in, but but who will want to invest in a country that is um, subject to this kind of degradation or regression so quickly? Uh, so I worry enormously uh, about the future, um, even in the best of circumstances. In the worst of circumstances, you have a failed state and you have um, flows of refugees, um, lost potential of you know thousands of young people, millions of young people. Um, so... You know, where we go from here is hard to say. And for democracy, again, the hope I feel is that you see the, the seeds of a potential way out, uh, or at least a potential better future for the country coming out of this. Um, in some ways, this brought everything to a head. It clarified a situation that was quite muddy before, this hybrid, part military, part civilian, that was not necessarily going to work easily. And now people are just saying, out with it. And they brought it to a boil. And the question is how that's going to resolve itself um, in the next several months. I can't give you certainty of how it's going to resolve itself. I'm afraid more people are going to be killed. Um, I'm very afraid for even a bigger massacre than we've seen today. Um, and I think we just uh, you know, can't sit back and, and wait for that to happen. The international community have to wake up. Those in Asia need to wake up and work with all of us on a solution that works for them and, and works for us. So, you know, I never liked the um, question, are you an optimist or pessimist? I always believe, I said, I woke up every day as ambassador and I was a realist, you know, <laughs> and, and I knew the challenges. Um, so let's figure out a way forward. Um, um, starry eyes here, um, you know, as we go forward. What can what can we do on an individual level? Like we've talked some that you know the, of what the government is doing and the government applying pressure. But what about on a citizen level, which is often difficult to keep these things that are happening on the far side of the world in mind as as we have our own problems here. What what can we do as citizens, and what can we do to make sure this stays at the top of people's mind that this is that this is important? Yeah, well, that's number one. You answered your own question. The most important thing is to keep it on the agenda. Don't let it fall into the shadows. Look, all around the world, we have problems. At home, we have problems. There's no doubt about it. We can be distracted. We have reasons to be focused at home about our own uh, conditions. Uh, there's a pandemic raging. It's raging even in Burma. Um, and there's, you know, you just turn on the news, you see what's going on everywhere. Um, so let's let's keep a candle lit for for Burma, for a place that is that is struggling. Uh, for itself that has tremendous potential. And, you know, there are ways you can give money and, and uh, you know, donate 
to, you know, because people are losing their money, they're not working, uh, to help keep them afloat. So that if you can find ways to donate money, uh, you can do that. Uh, obviously, write to the government uh, and make sure it stays at the top of the list, uh, the State Department. Um, and, you know, have Bush Institute and others continue to be engaged uh, to ensure that we don't forget. And if anyone out there has connections to folks in India or Indonesia or Singapore or Thailand or China or Japan, um, you know, put some pressure on. Say, what are you doing? This is not, uh, this is not acceptable. Uh, other than that, there's really nothing we can do that's going to be determinate. We have to recognize that. Um, but we can do our part to ensure that it doesn't fall back in the shadows and people are massacred without consequence. Well, we've been lucky to work with, you know, some of these young men and women and, and they're just, you know, without painting too broad, a, a too broad, a, painting with too broad a stroke, they've been a, just the kindest, nicest people that, that have come through this building in many ways. Like they're incredibly respectful and, and, and kind and grateful. Well, at the same time, the watching them just drink up the lessons of democracy when they're here in person and, and learning from the, from the different people is it's, it's, you can, you can see this passion for their country in them. And so, you know, I know we really hope that, that this isn't a, that this is a, a challenge that can be overcome and not something that leads to a, a real tragic civil war situation or any, or anything along those lines. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, you sometimes worry when you're an ambassador, you don't want to get clientitis, right? You know, people who go and they completely um, fall for the country and they forget their own country and all the rest. Uh, I love my country. Um, and when I was in Burma, I loved what I saw there. They have a lot of, they're not perfect. And they're not, they have many of the same challenges we do here at home of bridging the differences of religion or of ethnicity or of race and all of that. But, you know, whenever they would go on delegations, international delegations, as you say, they used, I would get word back from the delegate le delegation leaders saying they were the most impressive. Boy, are those Burmese smart. Boy, are they savvy. Boy, are they, and that's, you know, I, I don't know what's in culturally or whatever else in the DNA, but that's just what I hear all the time. The place has so much potential that has been destroyed because of military dictatorship and stupidity. Uh, and it's just tragic. And we thought we were coming out of that you know, in the last decade, and the military throws them right back into it. Um, it's just painful. It's painful to watch, but we, we can't forget about them. And as you say, let's support them where we can. If they, for instance, if they're out of the country, whether they're in or out of the country, let's support them and keep them on track for a day when they can go back and uh, make their country better. So I guess, you know, we often like to close with this question um, as we run out of time here, but what are we not talking enough about that we should be talking about? And this can tie back to really what we've been, this conversation with Burma or really anything that's kind of on your mind. Well, I mean, this has been on my mind a lot of late. I, I mean, what, what Burma represents, one thing um, is what I mentioned earlier about the young people in the streets and the young women paying attention to that trend doing more with that trend. Maybe uh, the Institute there probably gets it, but maybe listeners aren't as attuned to it. Maybe they are. You look throughout Asia, um, look what happened in Thailand with young people and young women, in Hong Kong with young people, young women. Um, they call this the Milk Tea Alliance. It also includes Taiwan, which always, which is a democratic beacon of Asia. They're young people in Sudan. They're young people, um, you just look everywhere, uh, in, in, in Belarus, um, go around the world. You'll see young people, particularly who are 
representing the hopeful future of democracy, hopeful future of the world, um, everywhere you look. And what's holding them back is regressive old guard thinking, old mindset. So when people say, well, democracy is failed or it's regressing, you know, how can that happen? You know, there's a lot more energy that is is seeking to, to assert itself out there. And we need to be focused on that, focused on that positive future and invest in that and do right by them and try and push out um, those who seek to pull us and their countries back to their ways, their old ways that had failed so badly and give space for the new and the fresh uh, that we see on the streets and, um, you know, in, in, in our classrooms every day. Ambassador Mitchell, this was really, really informative and timely on a topic that's, you know, we're hearing a lot about in the news, and it's great to hear your perspective, very unique perspective. Thank you for spending this time doing this. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Learn more about the National Democratic Institute at ndi.org, and learn more about the Bush Institute's Liberty and Leadership Program at bushcenter.org slash libertyandleadership. If you enjoyed this episode of The Strategist, please leave us a review or send a note on social media at The Bush Center. Thanks for listening.